Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Let's begin with a few statistics. State courts handle more than 95% of all court cases in the United States. A recent report on racial and gender diversity from the American Constitution Society found white men comprise 58% of state court judges, less than 33% are women, and 20% are people of color. You're about to meet one of the 33%. Although recently retired, Joan Loeb has spent more than 30 years on the bench. She was appointed a New York City housing court judge in 1985, and a couple of years later was elected to civil court Manhattan, where she sat until 1991. That's when Joan was named acting justice of the New York State Supreme Court, and a year later was elected to a 14-year term and re-elected in 2006. During her judicial career, Joan presided over a medical malpractice part, matrimonial part, and an all-purpose trial part. Her election to civil court in 1988 made Joan the first openly gay woman on the bench in New York State and then the state Supreme Court. She was one of the founding members of the New York City Bar Association's Committee on Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Rights. Prior to her judicial career, Joan worked as a VISTA attorney at New Hampshire Legal Assistance, a staff lawyer for the union known back then as the Textile Workers Union of America, a staff attorney and then supervising attorney at District Council 37 Municipal Employees, Legal Services, and at a private law firm. So Joan, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Sandy, thank you for asking me. I'm really honored to be included in the group of women you have been talking to over what I understand it's just about four years now, and I think it's remarkable. So why law? It was a reaction to my parents in some ways that um, I grew up in a household that both my parents were public school teachers, and my mother's sisters were all school teachers, and the idea was, well, if you're going to have to work for a living as a young woman, there's you can teach, you can be a nurse, and maybe you can be a secretary. And my reaction was none of that sounded very interesting to me. (laughs) And I was, um, you know, remember being in high school and watching stuff around the civil rights struggles in the South and seeing the role that lawyers played there and was very interested in that the possibility for me as a lawyer, not necessarily doing this incredibly dynamic and brave things those lawyers did, but just the the idea of law can be in service of people and people's struggles for bettering their circumstances. So you really impacted by what was happening around you. Yeah, and, and, and the creation of the Legal Services Corporation in the John F. Kennedy um, administration, I think, was what kind of pushed me over the edge into law, because I just thought those people were doing amazing things, especially the California Legal Assistance Program that was working with the farm workers who were organizing in the grape uh, orchards of the of California, led by Cedar Chavez. Uh, it was just amazing to me that you could be sort of in that struggle in a way that could really help as opposed to sort of just rooting them on from the sidelines. Right. You could impact change. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how that anybody thinks of law that way quite the same, but I think there's still people who do think of law as something that does can have enormous impact on social change. Maybe not at the moment, but uh, change. <laughs> right. So what happened to you at law school? You were not disappointed, were you? 
No, because I ended up at an extraordinarily wonderful law school that was kind of the perfect re- reflection of what I wanted to do. It, Rutgers Newark was, um, you know, not very well known, I guess, as a as a law school if you wanted to go into business or you wanted to be a tax lawyer. But it had an enormous number of people in the faculty that were um, actually involved in various struggles in the South, particularly around the efforts to, to try to stop the war in Vietnam. The law office of Lenny Wineglass, who was a defender of the Chicago 7, was really just across the street from the law school, and the law school became an adjunct to his office, and a, a lot of us got kind of pulled into doing research for that appeal in Chicago, which was also being led by one of the most amazing legal minds that I ever came encountered, ever encountered, was a guy named Arthur Kenoy, who was a professor of constitutional law at um, Rutgers at the time, and one of the um, you know mainstays of the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York, which was a civil rights organization in the midst of trying to litigate the end of the war and things like that. But it was extraordinary, and, and the, the school uh, attracted a lot of people that had been in the civil rights struggle, who had been leaders in the anti-war movement. Not the year I was starting. I started in 69. I was like one of very few women in my class. I was going to ask about that. How many females were there? There were three sections. At the end of the first semester, I was the only woman in my section. There were probably a handful of women in the hall all three sections. But the year that followed, it was almost 50% women. It was an enormous sea change in wow. in who they admitted. And they were all people that were just extraordinary. They were people who had done all those sort of things, been community organizers, been teachers, been out in the real world. So they, they had a very progressive dean, a law professor by the name of Heckler, who was just saint-like in always trying to talk about progressive things. And there were two times that during the, the my course at Rutgers that there were things that made us shut down the law school, which was um, the murders in Kent State and ah. and Orangeburg. And, you know, we had the, the whole school became a symposium on racism and the war. And um, so I, I had no idea what, what real law school was like, <laughs> and I didn't know what real lawyers learned. I uh-huh. was just lucky. And I was also um, in the first clinic, and that was one thing that the law school had a, a, a national reputation about doing clinical law teaching. There was a, a, another extraordinary woman by the name of Anna Mae Shepard, who had been a, a legal services attorney in Newark at the time of the Newark riots. And she was first a writing teacher, and then she set up my second year, the, what was known as the Urban Legal Clinic, which was the first clinic where you could get course credit for working on actual cases that she was working on in her office that was in um, the central part of Newark. And she was someone who became a a wonderful mentor all my career. So I I was always lucky to have people that inspired me. Well, clearly the match worked to be in an inner city law school because Newark was and still is a very challenging place. So then it made perfect sense, didn't it, that you should graduate and start off as a VISTA attorney? It made sense. Partly it was because I had graduated ahead of of the people I was 
thinking about working with, I was kind of marking time for a year. What do you mean? We were, had plans to start a, a neighborhood law office in, in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. It got very complicated. It got very complicated with a lot of very weird politics that if you weren't around in in, in the middle of the 70s, it probably would not make much sense. Okay. But I went mm-hmm. off to Vista for a year and ended up in New Hampshire, which was absolutely gorgeous. But I don't think I talked to anybody in the <laughs> community I, I lived in to talk about anything other than the weather for the whole year I was there. It was very different. And I had to, I had grown up in a city, lived in a city all my life. So it was it was fun to be able to walk down the street and see a cow. I got a big <laughs> kick out of that. Um, the funny thing about that is I ended up doing housing work there, but housing work that I would have never imagined I'd be doing. Um, the major equivalent of landlord was someone who ran or owned trailer parks. And at the time, there were very few protections for people who rented hookups or space and, and trailer parks. So it was it was kind of litigating the issues that you would be litigating against the landlord in trying to establish rights to habitable homes mm-hmm. against someone who was without any any legal sanctions sort of throw his family out by just cutting off their water, cutting off their propane, whatever it is, and just kind of padlocking their space. So it was a challenge there. It was a different kind of landlord-tenant law, but, you know, in some ways very similar. to Right, but paved the way for you to get that first judicial job. So then clearly you knew that you were never going to work for the man. I, yes. It was nothing that occurred to me that most people who went to law school did. It just wasn't there. And this was just not part of your plan, ever? Ever. Never, mm-hmm. ever, ever. That was not the attraction. The attraction was some kind of uh, giving back to people in the community. Well, it's wonderful to be able to get yourself involved with not even so much a cause, but something that elicits passion in you. But the irony, of course, is that you know when I was a young law student or baby lawyer, and we were always fighting the man. You know, the man then became me when I got to be a judge. Yeah, that is pretty funny. Yeah, real switch. So let's talk about that. Did you want to be a judge? No. I mean, I, it was not, it was not on my radar screen at all. But in 1984, 83, people in New York in what was then called the um, Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, when people were struggling with the issue of should you identify a gay bar association as a gay bar association. The code was human rights. They were working to get more people visible in government in the city of New York. They were um, a group of people were working with the city council to get stuff introduced to make it a violation of at least a state or a city ordinance that you shouldn't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. Transgender bisexuality wasn't quite on the screen then either, the radar screen. At that point, legislation had passed to add 10 housing court slots to um, the New York Civil Court. And a a friend of mine from law school who at that point was working with my my wife then then you know, kind of life partners. Mm-hmm. We had been together for a number of years by then, mm-hmm. but not married. We were both asked whether we would be interested in having our names on a list of openly gay lawyers who, you know, are qualified at the time, were qualified at the time to sit on the housing court and do it as an openly gay judge because um, the mayor was just 
about to announce his first openly gay appointment to the court, the, the, the civil court or the criminal court. I think it was civil court. It was an interim civil court, a gentleman by the name of Bill Tom. And um, the same people that were working and lobbying to get Bill Tom appointed um, were getting this list together for submission to the chief judge and two of the administrative judges who would make the appointments for housing court. It, New York is strange when it comes to how you get to be a judge. There are all kinds of different ways. Housing court really isn't what's known as a constitutional judgeship. It's really like a hearing officer, and it's kind of a subdivision of the civil court. So it's not quite a judicial spot. It's a quasi-judicial spot, but it, it really has prominence because people know who you are if you sit in housing court, and, and it does does have a lot of and you're really impactful. Reach. Your decisions are really impactful. Yeah, absolutely, and it and it's it's the bulk of what civil court does anyway. Mm-hmm. A list was submitted. Both Mary, my spouse, and I were finalists in this selection process, and I got the appointment. The next year, Mary got the appointment to family court, so she became the first openly gay woman to be a state court judge that had a constitutional status. Wow. That's how I got to be a judge. It was not about being a judge. Uh, kind of a personal story that I, I kind of, I can't tell right now looking back if, if it appalls me the story or it's kind of <laughs> cute, but I had never officially come out to my parents. I had just lived my life. Oh, and you knew you were gay at a young age? Well, no, I came. I mean, I realized I was gay probably in the end of college. Okay, mm-hmm. I was out of their household, but you know, it's, I never had that discussion. My, mm-hmm. dad. So I want to sit I, down. I want to talk to you. Yeah, mm-hmm. but then I realized that there was a possibility that there would be some notoriety or, or press would pick up the idea that I was going to be the first um, lesbian appointed. That to they focus on that more yeah, so than that, anything that, else. It, yeah, I didn't want them to be blindsided by it. So sure. I, I get on the phone after I was told I get the appointment, and I call my parents, and I say, Mom and Dad, I have some good news for you and some bad news for you. <laughs> good news, I just got this great job. The bad news, I got it as an openly lesbian person. And there was silence in there. Fun. They congratulated me. They were always, always throughout their lives very, very supportive of me. So mm-hmm. It's never been an issue, but it was kind of – Not the best way to break that news, I guess. Not the worst way either. That was such a part of who you were and are that it was important to kind of, no pun intended here, marry the two, right? Your professional career with with your personal. One of the things that I always found and think is very true is that people's prejudices break down when they realize the person they have these preconceived notions about are just like them. Mm. And, and that's like I, I remember talking to one of the people in law school when I when I came out to her and she was again this this wonderful professor. Her response was, "Oh, I'm I'm so sorry that you're gay. I mean, life is going to be so much harder." And it's just you know maybe in some sense that's true, but I haven't felt the least bit diminished in my ability to do anything I wanted by the fact that I'm a lesbian. But again, I have always been in communities that have been incredibly supportive. And I don't really know what it's like to live in a place where everybody around you thinks you're got, you know, you're the devil. Right. You have six heads. Yeah. And, um, you know, the closest I got to any sense of that, even though I know a lot of people, my, my contemporaries were not coming out because they were afraid. They, they were a little bit older. They had been through bar raids and things like that, where there was much more 
active oppression. And I, you know, I, I've, I would had a period of going to bars, but they weren't ever raided. Mm-hmm. Anyway, when when um, Mary was sworn in by the mayor as the family court judge, um, because we were living in Staten Island, the Staten Island press picked up on it, and there were some troubling calls to the administrative judge about who is this, who is this Joan Lobus that this judge has talked about in her op- in her swearing in, you know, and and the implication was that we were lovers and this was like, you know, not for Staten Island, but nothing came of it. Uh-huh. So when you were elected to civil court, that's when you also founded the New York City Bar Association's Committee on Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Rights. Why? I was co-chair and founder, but the main moving um, force behind that is a professor at New York Law School named Art Leonard, who had had a he's an amazing guy who had been doing um, a newsletter on on developments in the law having effects on um, homosexuals and transgender people for years. And he's a real scholar, real um, litigator. And it was part of um, getting bar associations to include in their non-discrimination requirements for lawyers sexual orientation and gender issues, and he was really at the forefront of that. And there had been there had been such a committee in California, and Art wanted to see that the city bars had it because the city bar has some prestige and some. It's a mechanism for issuing reports that could impact decision making or policy. Something that comes from the bar association of the city of New York is better than just some small organization. Right, that has potency and, yeah. and impact. And it was trying to attack some of the, you know, the non-so-subtle discrimination which still exists within the court system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the kind of stuff that people do or say things that are unkind based on stereotypes or, in fact, may limit people's ability to, to progress in the in the career of their choice in the, either the, the people that were openly gay or not even quite open in mm-hmm. court officers or clerks and there were you know some some of the same sentiments that exist everywhere within the court system about you know whether well, or not really honorable people what do you think impacted you more as a judge being gay or being female being female i mean that's easy that's easy i don't think i'm particularly butch looking i think i'm who i am and i'm not hidden about it but you don't always come up to someone and say, oh, they're gay, but you can pretty pretty often tell, oh, that's, <laughs> that a, I'm that's a, a woman. Yeah, right. So you were, I'm going to use this term in quotes, as a judge, an anomaly, as a female. Not in Manhattan. Manhattan has the benefit of... Being or, very progressive. <laughs> very progressive, and there were a number of women on the civil court bench who then moved into the Supreme Court bench when I started. Outside the city of New York, Bubkus. I mean, mm. it's really, it's a phenomenon of New York City. And they were a wonderful group of women who were very, mostly very feminist in their, in their view of what they, what they were about. And were all women who had gone through law school earlier than I had. And, you know, had to put up with the idea that you're you're going to have you're going to go home and have kids you're not going to have a career so why are we spending any time on you what was that like for you to be appointed a state supreme court which is 
pretty impressive. Yeah, it was pretty terrifying because I, my, my, you have to remember what I said earlier. I had some gaps in my legal knowledge. You're expected to handle everything when you get to civil, more so when you get to Supreme. You're supposed to know yeah, everything, the business right. stuff. You're supposed to know the, the tax stuff. You're supposed to know the trust and estate stuff. And um, you know, I knew some general background. I'm not going to say that I didn't have the exposure to some of the issues because you have to go with, go through a bar exam to be licensed. But I didn't really have any interest in those areas, and I really had to get schooled pretty quickly in things that I knew nothing about. Before being appointed a judge, how often had you tried cases in court? I'd done a lot of housing court cases, and I've done, I had done some disability cases. Had you done a lot of jury trials? No. I had done bench trials. Um, I had done motions. I had done a lot of hearings, administrative agency hearings, and um, for like people in welfare who had been denied welfare benefits, and then that goes into Supreme Court in something called an Article 78 proceeding. But you know, it was a, a slim slice of what the court venue is when you get to a general jurisdiction court. Was there ever a, one of those "I'm not worthy" moments? Um, not unworthy. A lot of times I had no clue of what was going on in front of me, and then I had to really put in the work to understand what the case was about. I was lucky to have some really great legal secretaries or their court attorneys or what they're called who kind of really got me through by being very astute and could lead me to the cases. And with good attorneys, it's not that undoable because when you have good attorneys, they will argue to you what you need to know. Uh And Mm -hmm. they will tell you you know, this is where we really dispute something. These are the good attorneys. And when you have good attorneys in front of you, all my, you know, kind of snide remarks about lawyers fall away because (laughs) they're really very good craftspeople in what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, And to hear people who are really good on their feet argue in front of you is such a treat. It's like, you know, watching people really know how to respond to everything you're thinking and every question you ask and and have a comeback for everything the other side is is pushing without repeating themselves over and over and over again, which is what bad attorneys do. Or when I ask a question, when I ask a question from the bench and they, they don't answer the question. Mm. Um, but the, the good ones are, I mean, they're really very, for the most part, very, very smart people who understand the issues that need to be established for them to get what they need to get for their clients. Not That didn't happen all that often, but it happened often enough to say what a pleasure it is when it, for me as a judge to watch that. When you preside over a medical malpractice part, for example, and then you've got the facts versus the emotional stuff. I mean, yeah. I always made a joke that I could never be a judge because I'd rule against you based on what you were wearing, you know, <laughs> as opposed it, to, the, to the facts. I mean, what a responsibility to just look at it from a certain window. Well, again, that's partly made easier by good attorneys. The worst kind of the case is, you know, when somebody's being so mammothly out lawyered by the other side that you don't you're really not getting their case. Uh-huh. You're not getting their side. And that that's it's painful to watch and and I always that that's when I would worry I would kind of go a little bit further to try to figure out what the side was that I wasn't hearing from. I found myself not having trouble with that surprisingly enough. Um it was more kind of a, an exercise in what makes the most 
sense to me in the light of the parameters that the law establishes for any problem. And the one area where I really did have the most struggle with being overcome with emotional responses was when I was um, hearing what are known as Article 81 proceedings. In, in New York, Article 81 is the mental hygiene law, which is um, what you have to invoke when someone is no longer capable of making determinations for themselves. And it's it's you have to bring a petition under this section of the law, and it's a it was revised from a very kind of pretty strict standard under what used to be the conservator um, and committee rules, where people were stripped of every power of to make any decision for themselves, and it was taken over by either an individual or a group of individuals. Article 81. Um, was enacted to try to be more flexible so you could find the least intrusive way to take over someone's civil liberties by trying to determine what it is their incapacity was Mm -hmm. and how to best make sure the decisions were being made for their good, own good. And it's a hard area of the law because a lot of people don't have the resources to get a guardian appointed that's, that's someone they know there's a process the judge gets a report from someone who was appointed by the court to look into the status of the person who's um, considered a incapacitated, the alleged incapacitated person or AIP. And then there's a trial, uh, not before a, a, a jury, but a trial where the AIP has the right to have counsel representing them as opposed to whoever brings the petition and sometimes the petition would come from a nursing home where they need someone who can competently exercise decisions on, on finances and stuff. And other times there were people that were in, in the community but really weren't able to take care of their own needs so that it was a danger to people in an apartment. Maybe there was an odor. Maybe there was some fires that had happened. And it's a very difficult thing to sit and judge when somebody should not be able to do what they want to do. You know, why can't I live on the street? What's wrong with that? Why can't I live in this hovel with everything I've ever owned? Right, a hoarder. Sometimes I was so overwhelmed with, oh my God, they're both both the grace of God. (laughs) Go I, in the the circumstances that I, I was trying really hard to figure out what would be least intrusive but it had to be what the person really needed because it would be silly to do one of these things and not give the person who was seeking powers enough powers to function. Did you ever have a matrimonial case that was somebody really famous? Several. I mean, it's public record, but I don't want to be in the position of doing that. Well, maybe when we, when we end this, <laughs> you'll let me know. There are a lot of celebrities, obviously, that, that are in Manhattan and, and divorced in Manhattan, and you know, are, are, it's all over the press. I seem to get the ones that were on the ends of their career. Oh. Like, I knew who they were, but a lot of people wouldn't. So you must feel really good. I feel like I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky in having been in the right place at the right time which is basically how I got to be a judge. Basically, I was in the right place at the right time. And speaking of the right place and the right time, was it that one day you woke up and said, you know what, I had a great run? Pretty much. I mean, the, getting back to my description of, of the court system in New York being Byzantine, there are different rules for mandatory retirement for different judges. And the truth was, that by the time I left, I, you know, it was like I enjoyed it. There was only one or two things that I you know, found really not pleasant about the, the job I had for so long. 
and that isn't a lucky, lucky thing. But it's time. You know, it's a glorious time right now for me. So I am lucky, lucky, lucky person. Joan, this is great. It was fascinating. Thanks so much for sharing Life on the Bench with us. It was really terrific. Thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Nobody but I'm